Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Got a Bible will be in Mark chapter 10 today, where Jesus is going to have a conversation with his disciples about true greatness. Um, and so as we get in, let me just ask, how many of you want to be great? Some of you think this is a trap. It's not a trap. We're going to see in our text today uh, that Jesus wants his disciples to be great. And that's true of anyone who would call themselves a disciple of Jesus, would call him Lord or consider calling Jesus Lord. So uh, I can say with confidence today that Jesus wants you to be great. So I know we're a little nervous when I say, how many of you want to be great? But I'm telling you, Jesus wants you to be great. He wants you to live a life of impact and meaning. And so as we get into the text this morning, I just want you thinking about right now, um, what would it look like for you to be great? Um, With the life that God has entrusted to you, what would it look like for you to have a life that people really admire? And uh, if you're a part of this church, you might be thinking, what would it look like for our church to be great? Um, Today, we are going to begin a lesson in true greatness from the greatest person who has ever lived. Are you ready? All right, Mark chapter 10. Uh, We're going to pick it up in verse 32. It says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So here's the context from which this whole discussion about true greatness arises. Uh, Jesus is on a walk with his disciples. Um, If Jesus had a Fitbit, it would have been very happy. He did a lot of walking. Uh, And what we see in Mark's gospel is a lot of discipleship tends to happen in these kind of normal, everyday conversations along the road with his disciples. Uh, And I think that's actually a really good lesson for us today, uh, that most of the discipleship that we will get to do, it's not going to take place in a formal classroom, in a formal teaching setting. Uh, Most of discipleship happens in everyday moments, in the car ride, to work, to school, in the cubicle, kind of in between things. That's where Jesus has so many great interactions with these guys. They walk on the road, they talk about what they just saw, and through teachable moments, he teaches them about the kingdom of God and what he's come to do. We've seen this for 10 chapters now. But what Mark tells us is this day is different. Uh, Jesus, he leaves his usual position of walking side by side with the disciples, like a rabbi, um, teaching, talking, interacting with them, and he gets out of his normal position, and he gets out ahead of them. He, he, he moves from talking to the guys to getting out in front of them. This guy is on a mission, um, and this is a, a real intensity shift. This is a, a rising in the intensity. They, Mark's been telling us for a few chapters he's headed towards Jerusalem now, and all of a sudden, the normal, everyday way conversations give way to Jesus is marching out in front, and he's headed to Jerusalem. 
Um, the way that Luke says it in his gospel is that at this moment, Jesus resolutely determined to head to Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And this new intensity in Jesus where they go from kind of walking and talking by the road. Have you ever been in the car in that moment where you're all having a great conversation and then all of a sudden maybe someone cuts um, dad off in the car and he just downshifts like, like, no, we're on a, a mission to teach this driver. See, Jesus isn't angry. He's not sinning here. Um, But it is like that, where there's a step up of intensity. And this intensity, this step up, it produces uh, great amazement and great fear in those following him. Uh, Now, that's, that's a unique combo, amazement and fear. But think about it. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, This is the holy city. This is where first century Jews uh, expected that the Messiah would go to war with the Romans uh, and effectively uh, kick the Gentiles out of the Holy Land and restore the nation to Israel. And so they see this man they believe to be the Messiah. he, He gets out with the new intensity. He's marching towards Jerusalem now. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Messianic war is coming. Let's go. This thing's happening. And because of that, they are filled with this mixture of excitement that their hopes might be coming true and fear. You know, the greatest army the world has ever known is there. And realizing this, Jesus takes this moment as an opportunity to tell them about what's actually going to take place in Jerusalem. Um, He says, hey, you know what? The worst thing you fear is going to take place. Uh, The Romans, they are going to kill me. But don't worry. Love that he doesn't stop there. The Romans are going to kill me, but don't worry. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. In other words, my death is all a part of the plan. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to help them understand like he's been doing for three chapters now, that he's going to Jerusalem to do more than a military battle with Rome. He has come um, to fight a much greater fight against a greater enemy. And his death is a necessary part of the victory that he is going to achieve in Jerusalem. This is the third time he's told these guys this now. Because if you've been with us in this series, you know that um, the disciples, like most of God's people in the first century, um, not unlike God's people today, had wrong expectations of God. They had wrong expectations of what the Messiah would do. They're looking for a military victory. God's looking to set them free from Satan, sin, and death. And so for the third time, Jesus says, hey, fellas, that's not what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Something much greater is going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, Uh, The first two times Jesus does this, they completely miss the point. Um, They hear what they want to hear, and they go about jockeying about um, who's going to have the position of greatest authority and influence when we get to Jerusalem and we're in charge now. So what do you think happens this time? It's third time a charm? Someone, someone's read the text. Third time is not a charm. Verse 35. So he's just told them for the third time what he's going to do in Jerusalem. Then we read this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want us to do, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Um, so, so at least they're consistent, Right? Jesus has just told them, hey, I'm not going for this victory. You think I'm going to die, to rise again, to defeat the greatest enemy of humanity, the hope of the entire Bible. It's about to happen. It's so much bigger than defeating Rome. And um, before we pick on these guys too much, um, I want to highlight what's good about their request. Uh, Because there is something good here. There's not a lot that's good, but there's something good. And that is they believe that Jesus is going to win. 
Did you catch that? Like, if they are expecting messianic war with Rome, uh, you don't ask the guy you think that's going to lose, hey, could I sit at your right hand? Because if you think he's going to lose, that means can I be in jail with you or worse? No, they believe Jesus is going to win. And I mean, like, before we get into the rest of this, can we just admit that's an incredible statement of faith right there? Like, we know the ending of the story, so it's very easy for us to go, well, of course they believe that, but put yourself in their shoes. Would you take an unarmed man against the greatest army the world has ever known? And yet, James and John have seen enough in the life of Jesus uh, to know that he does any, more than any mere human could ever do. Uh, they know that he commands the winds and the waves. They know that he tells dead people to stop it, and they do. They come back to life. They know that even the forces of darkness themselves bow to him and follow his commands. And so um, James and John, kind of like Peter did a few chapters ago, they say, Jesus, uh, you know, those religious leaders you're constantly outsmarting, they're not going to get one over on you. Um, Rome, that one's a little bit tougher, um, but even the greatest army the world has ever known, it, it's no match for you. You could just call down lightning from heaven, thunder and waves. You could cause the earth to split open and swallow them. What they're saying is, Jesus, we're going to push our chips in on you. We believe you are going to win. And so they say, hey, when you do win and you're all famous and reigning in glory, what we want to do is we want to sit at your right hand and left hand. Um, again, I just want to point out, that's an incredible statement of faith, that they believe Jesus is going to win. Um, and so that's positive. Um, God's at work in their life. Uh, but at the same time, um, and maybe you could feel this coming, their request, it reveals that they're still not really tracking with what's going on here. They're not, they're not really tracking with what Jesus has come to do. They're still thinking in terms of a military victory of an earthly kingdom. And so when they say, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand, those would be the places, the two places of the greatest influence and power in the kingdom. Um, and we still do the same today, right? Um, like if you see the president in any formal address, say the State of the Union, the people sitting at his right and left hand, uh, they have significant power and influence, right? Now I'm not asking what you think about them. That got tense right there. I'm just saying like those people at the right and left hand of the, the senior leader tend to have uh, a great deal of influence even in our world today. That's what they're asking for. They're saying, um, Jesus, we think you're great. We think you're going to kick the snot out of Rome. And when you come into your kingdom and all of your greatness, we want to have junior greatness. We want to be your vice president and chief of staff, whatever the equivalent would have been. We want to be there with you reigning in your glory. What this is, is a request for greatness. They're recognizing that Jesus is great, and he's about to do something great, and they want to kind of ride the coattails of his greatness to their own position of greatness. And what I want, to, it's so important that you realize this throughout this message today, is that Jesus does not critique their desire for greatness. He critiques how they're going about it. Uh, listen to Jesus' response here. He's going to help them. Um, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom it has been prepared. 
Uh, what Jesus says is, hey, first of all, fellas, you don't understand what you're asking. Um, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you, gonna be, are you able to be um, baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? What he, in other words, what he's doing is like, did you catch what I just said about what awaits me in Jerusalem, this whole suffering and death thing? If you want to be near me, that means to be near suffering, to be near death, to be uh, baptized or submerged in, in suffering. Is that what you guys want? And James and John, their response is, Yes! Um, there's a reason that Jesus nicknamed these guys thun Sons of Thunder earlier in the Gospel of Mark. They are bold, they are ready for a fight, um, but they are not the sharpest tools in the shed. They have no idea what they're saying here. And if you're like, how can you be so harsh on them? Because I can skip ahead a few pages and see when the Romans do come for Jesus, these two guys, along with everyone else, flee in fear and run from Jesus. They are not able. They have no idea what they are saying. And yet, I love how patient Jesus is with these guys. He doesn't condemn them for a sin they haven't even committed yet. He's not <laughs> angry and scowling and, and looking down on them. What he effectively says to them is, hey, fellas, good desires, but you're looking in the wrong place. It's good that you want to be great. I'm going to help you with that. Um, but this is not where you will find true greatness. These positions, um, that's not where, not where you're going to find the greatness that you're longing for. In fact, Jesus says these positions are not even mine to give. Um, that is an incredible statement about the humility of Jesus. And um, I think there's a whole message in here about what true equality is and the harmony of, um, among the Godhead between God the Son and God the Father that Jesus could say, oh, no, 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 that's not my uh, role. That's not my position uh, to assign those gifts. But that's something I'm going to leave up to the Father. There's something beautiful in how Jesus and the Father and the Spirit relate to one another, um, but I promise you that's another sermon. Um, what I want to simply point out is the humility of Jesus, that he says, I don't have to decide who's going to sit at my right and left hand. That's something that the Father is going to do. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be good. I trust him. He's going to pick the people that sit at my right and left. But what he's saying is, fellas, um, these positions, it, that's not what makes you great. What the Father's going to do is he's going to put people in my right and left hand that he sees is truly great. In other words, positions of authority don't give you a greatness you didn't already have. In the kingdom of God, God takes those who are truly great and he puts them into authority. Now, some of you are already thinking, I can think of a lot of authorities that aren't very great. Well, that's because we live in a broken world. We've said this for 22 weeks now. The world is broken. God's kingdom is invading. It's making it new. But Jesus is telling us about the world we were made for. The only ones in authority are the only ones that are worthy of having that authority and serving those around them. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, fellas, these positions are not going to make you great. The Father's going to put those who are great there. Positions don't make you great. Something else does. Now, before Jesus can tell them what makes them great, we get to see, um, I love how honest and raw the Bible is, we get to see uh, the effects of our wrong pursuits of greatness. Um, remember, Jesus has told them, good desire, but you're pursuing it in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place. Good desire, wrong execution. And in verse 41, we see what happens when we look for greatness in the wrong places says, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Um, can you imagine why? 
because they wanted it too. Exactly. Some of you, uh, some people will look at this and go, well, maybe they had a righteous anger that they were like, guys, that's not where you're, no, they don't have righteous anger. We know these guys. We've been in this series for 22 weeks now, and we know ourselves if we were there. See, the disciples, I'm going to go on a limb and say, I don't think they're righteously angry that these guys are looking for greatness in the wrong place because in a verse, Jesus is going to pull all 12 together and teach all of them because they all have something to learn. They are angry at James and John because James and John beat them to the punch. Right? They're going to Jerusalem. They're expecting this great military victory. I mean, think about it. Just put yourself in this position. They know Jesus is out ahead. Something great is coming and, you know, maybe they stop for lunch, they're preparing lunch, and they're like, where did James and John get off to? And they look over and they hear Jesus say, guys, these aren't my positions to give. And they're like, are you kidding me? That, that was for us. Why? I mean, think about being Peter right now. Okay, so Jesus has 12 disciples, but what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark is even among the 12, he has three that he's particularly close with, James, John, and Peter. This is the only story in the entire Gospel of Mark where Peter is not mentioned alongside James and John. Um, so can you imagine be Peter? I mean, uh, it's already cold that James and John were like, Jesus, do what you want with those 10 suckers. But when you get there, I mean, we're your boys, right? You remember Mark chapter 1, you came to us first. So put us at your right and your left hand. Those guys, I don't know, maybe they could like watch the door or guard something outside. I don't know. Um, it, it's one thing that they say that about the 10, but to say that about Peter, who along with them went up the mountain of transfiguration and saw Jesus's glory revealed. I mean, can you imagine what Peter must be feeling in this moment? Like, have you ever felt left out of something? It's probably how Peter's feeling. And, and, and our boy Peter, um, he's got two modes. He's excited or he's angry. And so he feels left out, and what does he do? He gets angry at these guys. And, and here's, here's the thing that I want you to see here, um, that their misplaced pursuit of greatness, it's, it's leading to brokenness and hurt in their relationships. That it's causing them to treat their friends cheaply, and now their friends are angry at them. Now their friends are mad at them. Uh, and, and frankly, it's the same for you and me. When we look for greatness in the wrong places, it causes us to treat other humans around us cheaply. It leads to relational strife, um, often with the people that we're closest to. And that's exactly what's going on in this text here. And see, this is why people will look at greatness and say, well, greatness is the problem. Nobody should be in charge. Nobody should have uh, a life that we look up to and respect. We should just have um, no one in leadership, no one in, like, greatness just shouldn't be a thing. That is a conclusion that a lot of people will draw. This is why, by the way, when I said earlier, how many of you want to be great? About half of you, like, had your hands down, you're like, is this a test? Because we've seen how pursuits of greatness can go bad. We can see how they've gone like really bad. Like it's easy to point out like on a genocidal level at humanity. But I think if you were honest about your own life, you can see how this same motivation has driven you um, to treat people in your life cheaply. And so we go, okay, that's bad. That doesn't work. So maybe we should just toss out the entire concept of greatness. But that's not what Jesus does. Um, see, God has made us for greatness. And, and Jesus has come to really redeem what was lost in the fall. And so instead of saying, hey guys, nobody should be in charge. There should be no greatness. You should just all kind of say, I don't know. Nobody else is worth emulating. What he does is he takes a broken moment where he's got his friends. They're all mad at each other. And he pulls it together like he so often does for a teachable moment. Uh, look at what Jesus says to these guys. So 
So James and John, they're looking for greatness in the wrong place. The other ten, they're upset because they beat them to the punch. And then verse 41, excuse me, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him. And he said to them, look, you, you know those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, those four verses right there are dynamite. Like what Jesus is doing in those four verses is he is uh, tearing down the world's definition of leadership that leads to all sorts of strife and treating cheap people cheaply and brokenness. And what he's doing is rebuilding a picture of true greatness in God's kingdom. And I'm telling you, if you can grasp these four verses, you can be truly great. Uh, so let, let's, let's look at them. He begins by contrasting um, worldly leadership and godly leadership. Now, now hear me, um, it's not just people in leadership that are great. That's going to be Jesus' whole point, that servants are great. But um, these guys have just asked for positions of leadership, what the world thinks is great. And so he's like, you want to talk about leadership and authority? Okay, let's chat. And he contrasts two visions of leadership, the, the world's vision of leadership and God's vision of leadership. And what he says is the rulers of the Gentiles, what the Gentiles would represent, this is a Jewish audience here, right? Jesus is talking to 12 super Jewish guys. Uh, to the Jews, the Gentiles represented the secular culture around them. So when you hear that, think secular culture. Uh, when he says the rulers of the Gentiles, what they do is they lord it over them. They use their power to get the people under their authority to do their will. This is worldly leadership, and it's the same for us today. Um, what he's saying is that greatness is effectively um, defined in terms of what you can get, in terms of how often and how much and how greatly you can be served by people around you. Um, this is the mindset that the disciples were caught up in. This is what's going on with James and John. They want those two positions of authority so that they can get others to serve them. They think that would be really great. And again, the other ten, they're not much better. They're angry because they think they've missed out on an opportunity to ask for this. And Jesus says, guys, I know that's a common way of thinking. I know that's the air you breathe. I know that's what you have been taught as you look at the world around you. But that is not where true greatness is found. He says, it's all wrong. In fact, that's what's making everybody miserable. Like, James, that's why Peter's mad at you. John, that's why they are angry at you right now. Like, that mindset, it's never going to lead to true greatness. You want to be truly great? He says, here's what it looks like. Be a servant. Y you want to be the first? You be the slave of all. Um, now, uh, what Jesus is doing there is he's not endorsing slavery as it was practiced in the Western world. Um, I, I just want to say that every time we come across this, because that question can come up. Like, what in the world? No, what was practiced in the transatlantic slave trade, uh, the Bible calls sin and evil in 1 Timothy uh, 1.10. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a practice in the Greco-Roman world. We did a whole series on this in the book of Philemon, if you want to look it up. Um, but it, it's not what you think of when you hear slavery. What it was, was a type of servant who was the last person in society. So it Jesus is saying is, you want to be first? 
be last. I mean, how's that for radical? You want to be first, be the last. See, what Jesus is saying is that the world defines greatness by being in authority, by having the power to make others serve you. But what he's saying is, no, that's all wrong. True greatness is defined by giving up your power and using whatever authority that's been trusted to you to serve others. That's true greatness, according to Jesus. Um, And there have been a lot of leadership books, Christian and not, um, that have been grasping at this and tried to teach this. I think one of the um, most recent ones I've seen, and this probably isn't recent anymore, but the idea of leaders eat last. Um, See, people, Christian and not, have recognized the wisdom of what Jesus is saying here, that the world's vision of leadership, it it causes us to eat each other alive and treat people cheaply, and so there's got to be a better way. It sounds very beautiful. If you want to be great, you've got to serve others. It sounds beautiful until you try to put it into practice. And then you realize you have to put your spouse first and the person on the road in front of you first and the people that you do life with first. And so I want, I want to just take this idea of Jesus and just try to lay it on the ground for us. Like, what does it actually look like to pursue greatness by pursuing servanthood? Like, okay, um, let me give you this example. Um, our oldest daughter um, has a propensity to ask can I go first? With anything we do, um, even if it's something they don't think is fun, like brushing their teeth, can I go first? She loves to go first. Um, she asks this all the time about anything we'll do. And so is what Jesus saying here, um, saying that I as a dad should say to her, sure, you can go first in God's kingdom and then take care of her sisters first and make her go last and be like, pop, there you go, first in Jesus's kingdom. Is that the application? Just a rigid reversal of order. Um, I hope you've been with us long enough and Mark to know that's not what Jesus is describing here. You could get religious about simply reversing the order. And in fact, um, our oldest daughter has actually done this, where she started to go, um, Dad, can you do sisters before me? It's like she knows. Um, so no, I don't think he's just describing a rigid reversal of order. See, so much of what Jesus is saying here comes down to a matter of focus. He's saying, are you focused on yourself? Are you focused um, on your life? Are you focused on yourself or are you focused on others? Is your life filled with and marked by the service of others and lifting others up? Or do you tend to focus on the ways that everyone around you should lift you up and make your life better? That's what he's saying. He's not describing a rigid reversal of order. He's talking about a matter of the focus of your heart. Are you focused on how you can serve the people around you, or are you focused on how you expect all of the people around you to serve you? And I mean, we live in a culture, um, not unlike these guys, that, that basically teaches that the goal of life is to work hard enough to make enough money to where you can arrive to where everyone in your life will have to serve you. Um, to where you will have enough um, power or money or influence or fame that you can arrive to a position where you could just expect everyone to wait on you. And, and here's the thing. Um, it's not just outside the church. Religious people can treat the church this way. Religious people can work their way into the church and learn enough theology to kind of pass all of the tests to try to get into a position of leadership so that everyone in the church has to obey them. So maybe they haven't made it in the business world, but they, they have a sway over the business of the local church. 
And you're like, who would do that? You would be surprised. This is why when the New Testament talks about the requirements for leaders in the church, it comes down to this. Are you a servant? Are you setting an example? Are you laying your life down for others? Because if you think people exist to serve you, you will make church leadership a nightmare. And we've seen way too many examples of that. And so I don't know, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your home, um, whether it's in your workplace, I think because of the day and age in which we live, we tend to define greatness in terms of being served. We've bought the worldly definition of both leadership and greatness. We're totally focused on ourselves. And I'm telling you, I think it's the reason why you're miserable. Um, I will tell you that the times I am most focused on um, me and what I deserve, I am the most miserable. We're focused on ourselves when we believe everyone exists to serve us. You're miserable because can I let you in on a secret? Everyone else thinks you exist to serve them. Right? You're not the only one that thinks the world revolves around you. We all think this. This is the definition of sin. It's so warped our humanity that we think that we're the gods at the center of the universe. And so the reason you're going to be disappointed and disillusioned if you think others exist to serve you is because you live in a fallen world full of sinners that all believe the same. And so Jesus says, fellas, that is never going to lead to greatness. As long as you're focused on being served and derive your value and dignity from how people are responding to you, you're not going to experience true greatness. The only thing you're going to experience in a great measure is grief, is frustration. And frankly, if you ever get to a position of leadership and influence, God help those around you because if you're defining greatness by people serving you, you will simply use your position of leadership and influence to manipulate and control and use the people around you to serve you and fulfill that need in your soul. How much does that describe... um, Let's start easy. How much does that describe what you see in politics today? Um, How much does that describe, um, if we could just get a little closer to home? I didn't expect that one to be so intense. I thought we could all laugh at that one. Um, How much does this idea of expecting everyone to serve you and causing chaos because everyone else believes the same? Let's have some real talk. How much does that describe your home life? How much does that describe your workplace? Has that uh, described your experience with church even? See, this way of thinking, it's so easy to pick on the world and be like, ah, politicians, they all think we exist to serve them. What suckers? But this is a problem of all humanity. This is, I'm telling you, these four verses are dynamite. Um, most of the marital problems I have ever personally experienced or counseled people through could be resolved through taking these verses seriously. Most of the parenting strife, most of the friendship strife, um, uh, like fighting between roommates, could be solved if people would take these verses seriously. But the thing is, we live in a world that is so broken that we just assume that this worldly definition of leadership and greatness is normal. We just, it's so common everywhere we look, we assume, oh, this is what it means to be great. And so like James and John, rather than letting Jesus redefine greatness for us, we just try to beat the people in our life to the punch. And so we wrestle for control in a relationship, we wrestle for control in our workplace, and we think if I can just get control to myself, then I can make everyone serve me. 
if I could just beat others to the top, but you've got to hear this today. The whole reason that Jesus came into the world was to bring a new way of living into our world. Yes, it's commonplace. Yes, it's everywhere. But Jesus did not come into the world to continue the status quo. He has brought a new world, a new creation into this one that can set you free to be truly great. And, and that's what he tells these guys. He says, guys, that's not where you're going to find true greatness. That's what it's like in the world. But in my kingdom, man, those that really are great, they're the servants of all. They're the ones that are laying themselves down for others. And I, I know the objection is, but Jesus, if I do that, people will take advantage of me. They'll steamroll me. They'll abuse me. They'll walk right over me. Like, um, what do I do about that? And I think it all comes down to verse 45. Because, see, the thing is, apart from Jesus, you do kind of have to focus on yourself in this world. Everybody's looking out for themselves, and so you do kind of have to look out for you, because who else is going to look out for you? Um, apart from Jesus, the request of James and John makes sense. I want to beat them to the punch. I want to have influence and control so I can be truly great. But when you see how Jesus has served you, how he has come into the world and brought a new way of living, it frees you up to be truly great. Listen again to verse 45. This is uh, the heart of this whole teaching. Some commentaries will say this verse is the heart of Mark's gospel. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. What Jesus is saying is the reason that in my kingdom um, people serve others is because of how I have served them. That this is what changes the broken reality. So, so how has Jesus served us? I mean, listen to what he said. Um, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that where we started the text today? Isn't that what Jesus has been talking to them about for three chapters? He's been telling them, eventually I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And on the cross, Jesus, the only great one, the only good one who has ever lived, will lay his life down as a ransom for many sinners. For all who would ever believe in him, he lays his life down. He pays for our sin. He takes on our brokenness, our shame, our evil onto himself to the grave. And what he said at the start of this text is true. He rises again three days later and says, anyone who trusts in me, that sin, that shame, that brokenness, that way that you frustrated the people in your life by treating them cheaply, I've taken it on to myself. It doesn't own you anymore. You are now free to live a new life. You are now free from condemnation. What that means is if you're concerned, like, who's going to look out for me? Jesus' answer is, I'll look out for you. And I can look out for you like no one else can. The people closest to you, they might not look out for you, but the God who made you and loves you and came into this world because he loves you so much, he will look out for you. What this text is teaching is that if you trust in Jesus, that means that you have been served by the king of the universe. And there's nothing that he can't do. There's no sin with more power than his cross. There is no brokenness in your story that he cannot redeem. That by laying his life down as a ransom for anyone who believe, what he's saying is, if you trust in me, you have everything you ever need. 
I will take on your sin, your shame, your brokenness. I will trade you a new life. I will put my spirit in you who will begin to work new creation in you even now until you wait for the day in which I return and make all things new. And until then, people are going to try to abuse and use you, but I will be with you every step of the way, and I will work all things that happen in your life together for your good. This is what it means to be served by Jesus, that nothing can come our way with more power than him, and he is committed to working all things for our good because Jesus came in the world not to be served by us, but to serve us and give us a life that we can never achieve on our own. And I got to tell you, this is what makes Jesus truly great. See, every other religion says God's at the top of this proverbial mountain, and he's thrown some commandments down, and if you could just live well enough, you could earn your way up to the top. And maybe for you, it's not other religions you're thinking about. Maybe it's just other ideologies that say this way of living is up here, and there's great people up here, and if you could just be more like them. Christianity is the only honest worldview that says you could never be good enough. And so what God has done is he has come off of the mountain not to be served by you because there's nothing you could offer him that he doesn't already have. He has come off the mountain to serve you, to die in your place for your sins and to carry you up the mountain on his back to give you a brand new life that you could have never earned on your own. And according to the authors of scripture, this is what makes Jesus truly great. His death and his resurrection, it's not a blip on the radar. It's not something Christians should be ashamed of. It's on the cross as Jesus dies that we see the true greatness of our God and King. That he would lay his life down for someone like you and me. And this is what makes Jesus truly great. And this is why we worship him today, 2,000 years later. Like most of us, I think, are Gentiles in this room. We were the bad guys in this text, and Jesus has served us so well that he has made us a part of God's family. 2,000 years later, his praises still resound, while every other founder of every other world religion is dead and gone and doing nothing to serve us today. Jesus is alive and reigning by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is pointing us to life. He is working in our life. He is showing us. He is serving us today. And this is what makes Jesus truly great. And this is why we worship him today. And I'm telling you, when you experience how Jesus has served you, it can make you truly great. Um, That's what happened with James and John. See, even though James and John kind of missed the point on this day, um, Jesus didn't give up on these guys. Jesus continues to love them, to serve them, to walk with them. We'll see in a few chapters, he's going to wash their feet. Um, Ultimately, he's going to go to the cross and die for their sins and their foolishness and the way that they treat their friends cheaply. And it's after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when he comes back and he appears to them again, it's like everything he's been predicting for three chapters now finally clicks for these guys. And it frees them up. They don't have to serve, uh, believe that other people serve them because they see how Jesus has served them. They're like, wait, the one who conquered the grave serves me? Yeah, I don't need you dummies to do anything for me. I'm good. The king has got me. And so they go on to live a life of true greatness, so much so that Jesus' words in verse 39 come true. Um, What we see in the book of Acts is that James would one day drink his own cup of suffering. He's the first of the disciples to get martyred for his faith in Jesus. 
And yet here we are talking about him 2,000 years later. And, and John, uh, he would go on to write several books of the New Testament, um, but he, eventually he would get to this point of suffering. He would ha- experience his own baptism and suffering when church history tells us he was boiled alive for his faith in Jesus. And when they boiled him alive and they submersed him in the water and that couldn't kill him, they just sent him to an island and said, okay, nobody can talk to you. You are cut off from everything. That's like all your social media channels cut off. You can't go out of your home. I mean, they exile him. And why do they do this? Why do people attack these men? Why are we talking about them 2,000 years later? And the answer is because they were so committed to serving others that they wouldn't stop talking about the gospel. James tells people, Jesus has brought us life. And like, you stopped saying that or we're going to kill you. And he's like, sorry, guys, I got to tell everyone this is really good news. I want them to know. And then they kill him. And John, literally, you read the books of John. He's like, love one another because God has loved us. And the world is so broken. We hate that so much that they boil him alive. But these guys, they don't stop. And the reason is not because they heard a sermon about being more focused on others than you are in yourself. Because if that's your only takeaway... You will last about six minutes until you get to the parking lot before you give up. The reason is not because they heard a sermon on focus on others, not yourself. The reason is because they saw how their resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus had served them and continued to serve them. And even as they're being persecuted, they see the God against who they have done much greater sin continues to love and fight for and work for them. And it's the love of Jesus and the service of Jesus that empowered these men to live great lives that 2,000 years later that we would continue to talk about. See, we can look at these two guys in the text today and say they look quite foolish, but Jesus eventually made these guys quite great. We can look at this text and ultimately we should say what a savior Jesus is that he could turn these two dum-dums around to be such faithful examples of the faith that would bless so many. And that's the point. True greatness always makes much of Jesus. No one looks at James and John and says, wow, they're really great for who they are. Everyone looks at them and says, Jesus made them really great. Jesus had such an impact on their life. I wish he was so real to me that he could have an impact on my life. And if you've ever thought that, the good news I have for you today is the same Jesus that had this impact on their life is alive and at work right now by the power of his spirit. And he can do the same for you. And I I mean, don't we want to be a church that is full of similar testimonies to the greatness of Jesus that James and John went on to proclaim? Don't we want to be a church that's sending servants into this valley that are just fueled by the love and the greatness of Jesus and freed up by how he served us, that we need nothing from anyone else, that we are free to give because we have been served by the greatest God and King ever? Wouldn't that just turn this place upside down? And that is a life of true greatness, according to Jesus. That's what he came to do in us. And so, so what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to sing Jesus' praises and just warm our hearts around how Christ has served us. How he came not to be served, but to give us what we could never earn for ourselves so that we can walk out of here with the gospel more real to us, more freed up in the service of Christ to serve others. So uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to sing God's praises uh, that by the power of his spirit in us, we might be a little bit more freed up to focus on others and not on ourselves because of how our great God and Savior has served us this week. Let's pray. Jesus, you are 
great. Um, I don't know what else we can say after a text like this. Thank you that you came not to be served. So often I want to be served, and I'm a human. I didn't create the world. I didn't redeem the world. I'm not even a particularly excellent human, but you, for whom in all things who made all things and for whom all things were made. You came into this world not to be served, but to serve. Thank you for being truly great. Thank you for not giving up on us and our sin, but being powerful and good and great enough to coming to us. Maybe we're struggling this morning. Thank you for being great enough to meet us in that struggle, to point out for us where you have more life for us than that. And so Jesus, I just ask that you would do what you would do. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would meet each and every one of us. Wherever we're focused on ourselves, would you show us how you've served us and we don't have to cling to that so tightly? Would you free us up with our eyes fixed on you to begin thinking about how we can serve others because we know we're already taken care of because of how good you are? Would you meet us right where we need to hear that this morning? Would you make us the type of people who live lives of meaning and impact that people look at our lives and they say, I might not believe in their God, but their life is truly great so that we might be able to say to them, the only thing that's great in me is God's grace in me, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Let your grace not be in vain this morning. Work in us, move in us to bring great glory and honor to your name, Jesus. And it's in your name I ask these things. Amen.